it was important to me to tell this story and to tell it accurately. I never kind of set out and say, I'm going to write this type of book in this type of genre. Hello, and welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. I'm your host, Colin Mustful, and today I am so happy to be joined by Wanda M. Morris, author of the novel Anywhere You Run. And I want to shout from the rooftops that, you know, all these rights that we've so taken for granted are so important. Wanda M. Morris is the acclaimed author of All Her Little Secrets, which won the 2022 Lefty Award for Best Debut Mystery Novel, was a Georgia Author of the Year finalist for Best First Novel, and has been nominated for a 2022 Anthony Award for Best Fiction Novel. Wanda is a member of Sisters in Crime, Mystery Writers of America, and Crime Writers of Color. A corporate attorney, Wanda has worked in the legal departments of some of America's top Fortune 100 companies. She is an accomplished presenter and leader. As a former president of the Georgia chapter of the Association of Corporate Counsel, she established a signature female empowerment program known as the Women's Initiative. She is married, the mother of three, and lives in Atlanta, Georgia. Today, I'll be talking to her about her newest novel, Anywhere You Run. So your novel opens with the Freedom Summer Murders. Can you tell us more about that event and why you used it to set the stage for your novel? Sure. Um, Yeah, you're actually right. It is a bit of the reimagining of um, the murders of Andrew Goodman, James Cheney, and Michael Schwerner, who were freedom writers we come to Mississippi to help Blacks secure the right to vote in June of 1964. And I wanted to start the book there, not only because um, I imagine the, the, um, the story uh, weaving into a, a portion of that, but also I wanted to immerse the reader in, um, I, I guess, the, the sheer horror of what it was like um, for Blacks um, and whites who had come to the South uh, to help Blacks uh, secure the right to vote. It, it was treacherous. It was very dangerous at that time. Um, two of those freedom writers had come down from the North Um, James Cheney actually was from Mississippi and he was a a young black man and um, Andrew Goodman and Michael um, Schwerner were um, 
white young men who had come from the North um, because they felt so committed to this work. And um, they actually put their lives on the line for this. And so I wanted to immerse the reader in um, how dangerous a, a time period it was um, if you were uh, involved in the civil rights movement in the Jim Crow South. So you, you set the stage so that we, we can see how dangerous it is in the South. Um, then who are these characters, Violet, Marigold, and Mercer, that you use to, to you know, make that come, come to life? Yeah, so um, just a, a, a little bit about the book. I describe Anywhere You Run as a coming-of-age story of two young Black women in the South um, and how their lives are impacted by uh, the emerging civil rights movement of the early 1960s. Um, Violet is a 21-year-old um, Black woman who uh, feels desperate and, and chained, and she suffers this really brutal attack um, by a white man. And um, it's just her nature to fight back, and she winds up killing the man. Uh, but she knows that she won't find justice uh, in the Jim Crow South. So she takes off running. Her sister Marigold is uh, the type of young woman who um, has always tried to be the good girl. Um, she has tried to follow you know, the instructions of her parents, but she too is caught up in um, the mores and the strictures of that time period for young women. And she finds herself pregnant and unmarried um, in the 1960s, which was a big no-no for the good girls. Um, she too, like Violet, feels desperate. And she, when the police show up at her door looking for her sister after this murder, um, she sees this as an opportunity to um, try to uh, correct her situation, her, her unplanned pregnancy. And she goes on the run as well because she's, a, she's fearful that, um, you know, the police might try and, and get her involved in the murder. So she takes off running. Unfortunately, what they don't realize is that um, they're running from the wrong things and they're running from um, a man, Mercer, who um, is also desperate. And Mercer has some very dark secrets of his own. And much like um, Violet and Marigold, he too is caught up in the circumstances of, of the South. Um, he is a white man, uh, to be sure, but he is poor and uh, he is desperate and he has, uh, he has gotten himself caught up in the lure of what um, white segregationists could do. And so he um, then takes off uh, after these two young women to find them because he has um, he has been um, told that 
he can find some relief for his desperate situation if he finds these women. And so it becomes this kind of cat and mouse chase um, for Mercer to, to find these women. But um, I tried to make the story a bit unusual in that um, Mercer's desperation um, comes out of the fact that although he is white, he is still being used by white segregationists um, as a pawn. And, um, and what that does to him, what it does to his family. So I wanted to not only deal with just um, how segregation and segregationist um, organizations like the Mississippi Citizens Council, what they did was not only to divide a wedge or drive a wedge between blacks and whites, but it was really between the haves and the have-nots as well. Well, your story raises a lot of really important issues that, that I th are obviously still relevant to to today. And then I do want to talk to you more about your thoughts on that. But before we get into some of those things, I am interested in your craft. Um, particularly, I'm interested in the shifting points of view, not just in the different characters, but from between first person and third person. Can you talk about the strategy you used in, in doing that and also some of the challenges behind it? Mm, that's a great question. Um, I wanted to, um, I wanted the reader to feel what these two young women were feeling. And in order to do that, I thought it was really important to put their stories and their perspectives in first person. Um, and so um, Violet, uh, as, as you alluded to, the the book has three different points of view, Violet, Marigold, and Mercer. And so Violet and Marigold's stories are told in first person. They're, they're telling these stories as if they're, you know, reliving them to the reader. Mercer's point of view is told um, in third person close. Um, I did that because I wanted the, the reader to, to feel equally immersed in Mercer's story, but I wanted to be able to tell what was going on around Mercer and how decisions were being made um, that Mercer didn't even realize himself. Um, and so uh, for me, it was important to have kind of an unseen narrator who could look across the landscape of the story and um, and and give the reader a perspective of what this man was also going through, but also um, illuminating what was happening in this larger environment of um, the Jim Crow South and, and what it did not only to, to Blacks during that period, but also to Whites as well. Well, I think, I think it's hard to pull off, but as you kind of articulated it, it can really give you some flexibility and allow you to, to tell more of the story. Um, was it always from those points of view or did, did you have to, you know, work on it through the revision process? I knew that um, Violet and Marigold's story would always be um, first person. 
um, with uh, Mercer's story, I uh, initially thought I would do that in first person as well, but I felt um, I felt constrained because part of the story also demonstrates um, how people uh, react to, to Mercer and um, how he kind of reacts to the world as well. And so to bring those things in, I really needed somebody else who could see the story from a larger perspective, this unseen uh, narrator. But I, um, because Violet and Marigold stories um, are so intimate, it was really important to have their stories told from a first person perspective. Um, the the things that Violet, you know, does, um, what happens to her sister Marigold and what she undergoes over the course of the story seem very, very personal. And um, I, I wanted the reader to feel like they were living inside of these two women. So that's why I chose first person for them. I want to ask about another craft element, and, and I'm kind of asking selfishly as a writer who I, I write um, novels set in the 1800s, and we know people use different terminology at that time, the same as in your novel. And in your author's note, you write, this book contains certain terms that I would never use nor condone. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between the author, the narrator, and the characters, and um, how you separate them in order to use the language of the time? Mm -hmm. um, for me, I, um, I abhor some of the, the racial slurs and the epithets that are used in the book, that I used in the book. I abhor them. Um, but it was important to me to tell this story and to tell it accurately. And, um, you know, as you know, you write historical. It's really important to get it right. I think it's important to get it right for the reader. I think it's important to get it right as an author because you, you have an obligation if you're going to tell the story, um, particularly a story like this, where um, it is a real kind of living part of American history. It was, it was very important for me to get the story right. And unfortunately, um, the epithets that I use in the book um, lend authenticity to the story. Um, no one was being very politically correct in the Jim Crow South of 1964 Mississippi. They just weren't. And I could have... Um, avoided using those, but I don't think that the story would have felt as real and raw um, as I hope it comes across to the reader. So um, I, I made that choice, and, and I talked about this with my editor. We, we talked about it, um, but I ultimately came down on the side of making sure that the story was authentic and that the narrative and the dialogue was authentic for that time period and that geographical uh, part of the country. 
well, I know that must have been a hard choice, but you make some really good points about, about authenticity. I'm curious to know more about your genre. Um, this is a, a podcast for historical fiction, but you go beyond historical fiction into mystery and thriller. How would you classify your genre? And also, how did you balance those elements between historical fiction and mystery th thriller? Mm, that's uh, that's a really good question. I, um, you know, with my my first book, I was told, you know, oh, this is a you know a, a great legal thriller, and I didn't set out to write a legal thriller. I was really trying to write this one woman's story about you know what happens to her, and she happens to be a lawyer. Um, and so with this book, um, I'm told, wow, this is a, you know, it's a, a good historical, you know, um, yeah, thriller. And I was like, oh, I didn't set out to write that. I wanted to write about, you know, this thriller where, you know, these women are chased by this, this man. And so, you know, I'll tell you, Colin, I never kind of set out and say, I'm going to write this type of book in this type of genre. I lean towards thriller um, because those are the types of books that I like. Um, I like books that lead me on a chase, uh, that leave me clues that take me through all different types of twists and turns. When I sat down to write this book, I, um, I I'd had a character from my first book, All Her Little Secrets, um, that kept rambling around in my head, even after the book was done. And I thought, wow, you know, this woman and, and that character in, in All Her Little Secrets was uh, Vera. And, you know, she was just a really tough matriarchal um, figure in that story. And I thought, wow, what does, you know, a person like this, where does she come from? What is her origin story? And coincidentally, as um, I was finishing up that, that first project, we were coming through the aftermath of the 2020 election. And states like Georgia and Texas were starting to enact legislation that would make it tougher for people to, to vote. And much like I did in my first project, I channel my frustration um, into my writing. And so I kind of combined those things and stirred them all up. And this was the genesis for Anywhere You Run, because I wanted to explore, you know, what happens when you are boxed in at every corner. You, you can't vote. You don't have, you know, certain rights over your body. You don't have the right to move and go freely where you would like to go. And what does that look like? And how do you come through that um, with strength and perseverance? And so that's what I tapped into. Now, of course, I had to go back to, to 1964 in order to tap into Vera's origin story. But, um, you know, I didn't necessarily say, yeah, I want to write this, you know, historical fiction book. I, I, I wanted to tap into these characters and these themes. 
Well, I think it's really valuable that, that you were able to go back and make it historical. Um, but let's let's talk more about you know what you said there with your frustration. You know, this book is set around the time of the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act. And here we are 60 years later, and, and uh, we see some of these things maybe taking a step backwards. So what are your thoughts on w- what is happening right now, and, and how valuable do you think it is to share a story like this that can entertain readers, but also say, hey, this, this isn't new? Mm-hmm. You're absolutely right. I mean, think about it. It's like 60 years ago, almost 60 years ago that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed, which um, enabled um, Blacks to um, enter restaurants, movie theaters, hotels um, on equal footing with whites. And then a year later in 1965, the Voting Rights Act was passed. And it is so, um, it's so mind boggling to me that those laws were passed within, you know, one person's lifetime. Like we're not talking, you know, a hundred years ago. We're talking about a time where people who are still walking around, living and breathing today, um, did not have those rights. I, you know, recall when I turned 18, the first thing my mother said to me is, you have to register to vote. You, you got to register to vote. Um, because she said, I remember a time when I couldn't. Um, So I'm just one generation removed from this. And yet and still, to your point, we're still talking about these issues. We're still fighting over these issues. And unfortunately, we've rolled back some of these issues uh, with the recent um, uh, Supreme Court ruling in Roe v. Wade. So for me... I I feel like it's kind of my obligation as a Black female living in the South to continually talk about these issues because they're important. And unfortunately, you know, like that old adage says, you know, those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And I want to shout from the rooftops that, you know, all these rights that we've so taken for granted are so important. Voting is an absolutely important right. If you can't, if you don't vote, then you don't have a say in who governs you. You don't get to serve on a jury and decide, you know, issues of criminality and liability. And so all these things that um, so many of us have taken for granted can be gone, um, and so stealthily too. I mean, it's like, you know, a scratch here, a scratch there, and, you know, a few little rights are taken or peeled back, and then you look up, and before you know it, you know, we're standing at the door saying, why can't I govern my own body, or why can't I do whatever? So I wanted to I don't want to say I put all that in a book, but for me, it was almost cathartic um, when this country has been so chaotic around so many issues and the political climate is so 
polarized. For me, I climb into my writing and it was a way for me to highlight that we are not that far removed from a time when we couldn't we couldn't vote, we couldn't go and sit in a movie theater beside a white person. Um, we weren't allowed um, to go to school beside a white person. And so I feel like it's kind of my obligation to keep talking about these issues and sounding the alarm that, you know, we cannot, we cannot go back um, to the past. Well, I don't want to, to make your obligation any heavier, but I do appreciate you sharing your voice because I identify as a white male and I can't relate to having my mother tell me to register to vote or, or I can't relate to a lot of the things you brought up. So I do um, appreciate uh, what you do to share your voice and to share a story like this. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, let's talk about your background because you don't seem like uh, a fiction writer in your <laughs> professional life. Um, you are a corporate attorney, is that right? Yes, that's correct. Um, it's interesting, too, because these issues that I touch on in this book are um, the issues that, you know, rolled up to the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Um, and I practice in employment law, so my specialty is dealing with discrimination and civil rights. Um, so it's not that far a leap, <laughs> I think, um, what I do to um, to this book. But was it hard to learn how to write fiction um, from out of your professional world? Oh my gosh, Colin, yes. <laughs> um, with my, my first book, All Her Little Secrets, I, I started writing that book, gosh, way back in 2008. And, and then I, um, I put it away. I'd written probably about 70% of the book. And then I put it away because I convinced myself that, you know, look, I've got a job. I'm trying to raise three kids. Why am I trying to write this book? Because it's really hard. But I also had enough um, <laughs> self-awareness, if you will, to realize that my writing was really bad. It was really, really bad. Um, but seven years later, I picked that book back up and um, I read through it again and it was still bad. I was correct on my first assessment, but um, I loved the characters, the characters that were in my head. I just had not learned how to translate their story onto page. And so I went about doing that and I, I spent a few years just doing workshops and seminars and everything I could do, everything that I could touch so that I could learn the craft of telling a story. Because that's, at the end of the day, that's what we are, right, Colin? We're storytellers. It's not so much that, you know, we're writing books, but you're telling a story, you're trying to convey a message. And so I um, did everything that I could to learn the craft of telling stories and telling stories that were engaging and were emotional and um, contained a, a message. 
uh, writing as a lawyer can be uh, very stilted because while you're still telling a story in a legal brief, you have certain parameters which you know you are limited to in telling that story. Um, everything from page count to the way that you craft an argument to be persuasive. Whereas when you're writing a novel, you know, you kind of have everything at your fingertips and it's really kind of up to you how you will craft and mold that and build emotion and um, build, you know, suspense and tension in a story. Um, you don't do that when you're writing a legal brief. And so it was those things that I had to learn and, and to tap into. Um, I do not take this for granted. Writing is hard. Anybody who says, oh, it's a breeze, I admire you, and I think you must be a magician because to me, writing is really, really hard. Um, but I, I do enjoy it. Well, good for you. It, it takes a lot of patience. Uh, it takes a lot of courage. Mm -hmm. And I mean, as you said, self-awareness, you had to be self-aware and um, to work through that, I think is something you can be really proud of. And then on top of that, now you've won all these awards. Um, <laughs> did that come as a surprise to you? A shock, Colin, a shock. <laughs> Um, I'm blown away every single time. I am just blown away. I, I really am because um, I, I so enjoy this. Um, and the fact that, you know, readers reach out and they tell me they enjoy it too is just, um, it, it's a gift. It really is. I, I, I am blessed. I am blessed. Well, that that's wonderful. I d did want to ask about, and maybe I just need to j step outside of my genre a little more. Um, you have a Spotify playlist for your novel. Maybe that's common among YA. I'm not sure. Um, whose idea was that? Tell me more about this playlist. Oh, I'm so glad you asked about that. Yeah, there is. I think you're right. I think it must have been something that kind of started out a young adult or something. I'm not sure. But um, interestingly enough, when I write, when I'm actually creating new material, I cannot listen to music. I have to be in a solitary room, you know, a, a room by myself. Um, and it's all quiet. Uh, but I, I listen to music when I'm not writing that kind of inspires me in the book. And so I did it for my first book and I did it here. Interestingly enough, um, as I was researching the book, um, and I must give a shout out to the Auburn Avenue Research Library on African-American history and culture here in Atlanta, I spent hours in um, that library researching the civil rights movement and Medgar Evers' work in Mississippi on voting rights. And um, they're just a font of knowledge. The librarians in there are heroes. 
Um, so I, I immerse myself in kind of the research um, of the actual events that occurred during that time period. But I also wanted to bring the vibe of that time period to the book as well. And so I listened to a lot of um, music from the late 1950s and the early 1960s. I read tons of magazines and newspapers um, during that time period. And as I started to listen to the music, which was a lot of fun, certain songs just, I was like, oh my gosh, that so captures, you know, Violet. And oh my gosh, I could see, you know, Mercer sitting in a diner, um, you know, and listening to, you know, Frank Sinatra's Bim Bam Baby. So uh, a lot of those songs just inspired me and helped me to craft those characters. And so, yeah, I put them together on a playlist and it, it it's a really fun playlist too. I mean, it has everything on there from a civil rights anthem to, like I said, Frank Sinatra, Patsy Cline, Aretha Franklin, um, James Brown. I mean, it, it <laughs> the list goes on, but it, they were songs and music that helped me bring those characters to life, at least in my mind. Well, it makes sense the more I think about it. A, a film has a soundtrack. Why can't a novel have a soundtrack? Exactly. That's a good point. That's a good point. It's almost like a soundtrack for, for your book. Yeah, I like that idea. So what are you working on now? What's your next novel? So I'm working on um, a book that, again, is a little different. It uh, is contemporary, um, and actually it has a wee bit of speculative to it. Uh, but um, essentially, young affluent couples in Atlanta, Georgia, are being murdered in their own homes and their young children have disappeared. And uh, two detectives, um, Bella Washington and Temperley Marshall are on the hunt to find the killer and the kids. What they don't realize is that they are tracking a killer that they never saw coming for them. Well, there you go. You have the you have the tagline already set for it. <laughs> well, Wanda, thank you so much for joining me. Congratulations on your new novel, Anywhere You Run, and on all your success. And I've really enjoyed talking to you today. Same here. Thank you so much, Colin, for inviting me. 